One path, one choice, we win, or everyone dies. This is There and or Back Again, a special series by my brother, my captain, my podcast. Normally, our adventures have us journeying across Middle Earth, but here we jump into hyperspace to a galaxy far, far away. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweetin. Today's episode is Nobody's Listening, episode nine of Andor. But first, our spoiler warning. We will be spoiling everything that has aired thus far in Andor and any knowledge we may have of the Star Wars universe to date. We've uh, consumed a lot of Star Wars books, cartoons, comics, and games between us, so all of that is fair game. Prison time is slow time, says Shawshank Redemption, but I'd call the last couple episodes Cool Hand Luna instead, as Diego continues to deliver a great, sometimes subtle performance as Cassian Andor, now fully integrated to Table 5. He's become a leader of his workplace, having mastered his actual work while cataloging guard protocols and even filing away at a piping in the restroom. Hey, there's some Andy Dufresne for you. All it takes is pressure and time. Sadly, Olaf gets to play the role of Brooks Hadlin, the just-too-old man whose freedom and death are one and the same. He struggles mightily throughout this episode before finally having a stroke at its end. Cass and Andy Serkis's Kino, more Smeagol than Gollum this episode, get him medical aid, and in the process, learn what happened on level two. They killed everyone there. And why? Because this imperial prison... And why? Because this imperial prison facility is not releasing prisoners at the end of their sentences. They are just being shuffled off to a different cage. And the other inmates began talking, so the Empire fried them. Who cares about the sounds of people screaming and dying in pain if nobody's listening? Well, Bix is against her will. Up against Deidre Miro and Dr. Gorst, Bix does her best to keep mum on her relationships with Andor and Luthen, a.k.a. Axis. But to flip her, they make Bix listen to the tortured screams of dying Dizonite children, children massacred in the name of Imperial Expansion. Taking the violence inflicted on the Imperial frontier and turning it inward, the very textbook definition of fascism. As is Captain Tigo begging to hang Salmon Pack on Rick's Road to discourage further rebel activity. Deidre's not done, though. Thanks to her interrogation of Bix and the capture of a rebel pilot, part of Anto Krieger's group, mentioned last week by Luthen, they are now close to linking Luthen and Cassian to the Aldani heist, and maybe even have a beat on Krieger's planned attack at Spellhouse. Deidre has shown her quality to Major Partagaz, unlike the other buffoons making up the ISB. Speaking of buffoons, it's time for Serial... Nay, Cyril, <laughs> Karn, who's apparently been promoted and been working long hours of late. Or that's what he tells his proud mother when it actually seems he's fallen head over shit heels for Deidre Miro. He's just like me for real. <laughs> he's been following her because he's truly in awe of her power and her beauty. Cyril is already a suck-ass Ahab and a suck-ass Javert. <laughs> is he now a suck-ass Byronic <laughs> hero as well? Mon Mothma gets to take the podium of the Imperial Senate, but there, too, nobody's listening. 
The ostensibly elected representative body is plummeting into irrelevance, years before Palpatine outright destroys them. So she turns instead towards quality time with her cousin, Val. Our Aldani team leader is not only Chandralin, but also seems to be the cool <laughs> wine aunt of the Mahmas. <laughs> Bell plans to perform the spoiled rich brat routine while Mon continues her work with Tay Colma, who wants to bring in a smuggler named Davo Seaworth. No, sorry, that's a financier named Davo Skulden. <laughs> sorry, that's the best joke I could think to end this recap on. May the mother forgive me. Anyway, Emily, where do you want to begin? <laughs> where don't I want to begin? Actually, I know exactly where I want to begin, which is Vel. Um, uh- <laughs> Vel, 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 holy shit. Um, I was thinking, like, when I was watching this episode, I was watching the first scene of it, and it's, like, Denny's Goff City, like, Deidre Mero, oh my god, she's the powerhouse of this episode. And then Vel drops in at the midway point, and Vel drops in in her, like, full Velonica Lake look. She's, like, hitting it off with the the shithead little teenage daughter who sucks and who I think should die immediately. Uh, and, you know, she's, like... <laughs> so much fun and she's out traveling and the fact that she's kind of this like bohemian little dilettante is just totally like it's totally like integrated into this kind of like weird bourgeois power system where she can be a little hippie-ish and a little out there but like you know at least as far as Perrin is concerned when push comes to shove she's still on side and then there's this great bit where she gets hit with like wild homophobia and also wild misogyny <laughs> and then she's just like she faces up to Mon Mothma like at the end and is like nut up or shut up and recycles Cinta's line and I like this is like a five minute sequence right and in this I think I actually saw God <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's really great um, because we see Val return to her Coruscant outfit, outfit that we saw a couple episodes ago, and she brings a dress for Lita. Um, and I like that Lita, like the shitty ass daughter, gets this line that father lets her do whatever she wants. It's only Mon Mothma who tells her not to do stuff. Um, I just love the family dynamics here. But I think using Cinta's line is there's a couple ways to read it, but like to me, it's Vel taking it to heart more than Mm -hmm. anything, or at least it's like the downstream flow of that sentiment is like what little that she can take after the struggle, Vel is going to apply most of that towards Cinta. And then what Mon Mothma and her family gets after that is like, here, you can have a nice stress from time to time. Uh, You know what? So, so like, I think you, I think as is always the case with this podcast, you have taken the very nice and like, good-natured uh read on that and i'm gonna take the most bitter and cynical one well it's not bitter and cynical i think like the my take on this on her recycling of that line has nothing but love in my heart for these characters but i i I think it kind of justifies for me um my kind of crackpot theory um which is like and i hate theory chat in terms of like trying to predict what's going to happen in a show but i don't care Uh, it's my theory and therefore it's good um (laughs) in the like the 10 minute scene which was the scene between uh luthan and and cash and in episode three that that disney released as part of like disney plus day or whatever um they have a preface Mm -hmm. with uh with with tony gilroy and diego luna chatting about the scene in the show and one of the things that tony gilroy brought up is the line that cash has in rogue one which is i've been in this fight since i was six years old and this is a line that he's brought up in literally every interview he does. I've read so many of them uh, recently, um, <laughs> like a total uh, crackpot. Um, but he keeps bringing up this line. Um, I've been in this fight since I was six years old. Um, and I think the 
the little boy, uh, little Casa that we see on Canari doesn't look like a six-year-old boy to me. Um, the, uh, the, the fact that he then goes to like, what is by all accounts, you know, maybe slightly radical, but, but by all accounts, uh, you know, a gentle and loving and sort of careful home that is distinct from the war. Um, that also seems mm-hmm. like an undermining of that. And, and I think my kind of ultimate theory with where this show is going is I think this show is basically trying to argue that, that Cashin and the people who are like Cashin in the rebellion are, are bullshitters. And I, and I mean that as like bullshitters affectionate, which is like, they know what they need to say to win an interaction. And, and these are people who are looking at every single interaction as some sort of like competition, some sort of fight. And they always feel like they need to win. And to be honest, they probably do always need to win. But you look at like the year, the specific age, right? Six years old. And, and, and we know that Cashin has looked at Jin's file and we know that they know a lot about Jin. And Jin loses contact with her parents. She's taken by Saw when she's eight. <laughs> now, six is a very interesting age then, because if I would say like young Casa is probably like 10, right? On Canari, that, that looks like a 10 year old boy to me, which is older mm-hmm. than Jin was, which means that Cashin actually has less credibility and less authenticity than Jin does in that moment. And if he says, I've been in this fight since I was 10 years old, well, Jin can turn around and be like, well, I've been it since I was eight, so fuck off. But if he says he's been in it since he was six years old, then he wins that argument. He wins that conversation. And who may or may not have been six years old and what which of the children there looks like a six-year-old child? Well, his sister, his sister, who we have not seen yet, who he doesn't know is still alive. So my kind of crackpot theory behind all this is I, I think Cashin just kind of takes on uh, the the he he fudges the truth a bit. And, and I think he will ultimately end up taking his sister's kind of actual story as his own. But seeing the, the kind of repetition of Bell taking that line and repeating it to Mon as if it is the thought that she's always had and if as if five minutes ago, she wasn't the one needing to be told that because she wasn't fully invested in it, kind of plays into me that this this feeling that these people are always trying to win these interactions. And when they hear a line that's good, they're happy to parrot it. And, and it's just like, you know, I think that's brilliant. And I think that's such a great character moment. And I think it's so funny and so relatable. And it's also so like what people on the left are sometimes. And it's just fabulous and and i think like there probably is like you know val would not have reused it if she didn't have respect for it if she didn't see the logic in it and she didn't see that it was a worthwhile argument so in that there is this like you know senta was right like everything senta said was right and now val is going to recycle it but also isn't it so funny that val is recycling it uh like we said last week i i do not think luthan is long for the series mostly because of the price tag his the actor comes with and that's kind of a shitty reason to say anything is written But the way last episode when Val is leaving Ferrix and she's like positioned on the public transit the same way Luthen was coming Mm -hmm. in, it really strikes me that I think Val, where she's going to end this season is essentially taking over where Luthen was or like some kind of similar role, maybe not like a full on axis like uh, Luthen is now, but kind of she's the one who's kind of the next heir apparent to that role. And so I kind of like, because I think for me, she's proven her like true believer creds in terms of I know she kind of wanted to just run off with Cinta after the Eldani thing, but she she was in there at Eldani um, and then she was able to step away at Ferrick. So I still think she is committed to the cause, even if she's not, say, at Cinta level. <laughs> um, let's say she's 90 percent, not 100 um, percent. But I think 
we're seeing that percentage rise in Val, and now she has to like push that on because I think it's going to be her working with Mon Mothma going forward, uh, perhaps in season two or something like that. And obviously, it looks like they've they've been working a little bit together, or at least they know what each other are up to. Because there is a line that stood out to me is "You took a vow," which is something I'd hear from fucking Game of Thrones <laughs> about a Kingsguard vow or a Night's Watch vow. So I'm really curious what vow they swore. If it was something just more interpersonal and like, hey, we. We got to do this no matter what or if there is something bigger cooking like something more organized and uniform yeah. out there I, I also think it's just kind of, it's kind of something because i think you are right i think like i think bell is definitely kind of primed to be the like you say the heir apparent but i also think that must have been a conscious decision as well because it says something very specific about the leadership of the rebellion and like you know we'll get into the mon mothma stuff later and how enormously sympathetic as a character she is just by having just the most dog shit politics imaginable um but like you know Mon Mothma is this kind of figurehead of the rebellion, and she is the figurehead of the rebellion. Um, you know, beside Princess Leia, that you know, people know they may not know her name, but they know what she looks like if they've seen the original trilogy. They know who she is. She's this figurehead, and then and you know, Mon comes from a very wealthy background, and she's you know ultra powerful. And and Vel, being her cousin, is also probably related to this in some way. This this power scheme in some way, um, and and Cinta and Cassian are not. And they are people who are very clearly devoid of this sort of innate, like, aristocratic or pseudo-capitalist power. Um, and yet, at least where Senta is concerned, and I think latterly where where Cashin is concerned, um, they are the more principled of them. And, um, you know, like, to Cashin's credit, and to, to be honest, despite loving him as a character right now, I'm not really kind of liable to give him much credit. He doesn't flinch during the Aldani op. He doesn't fucking flinch. And he's not in it ostensibly right now for the principle of it. And that's not to hold it against Vel. Very normal and very human to flinch. But Cinta also doesn't flinch. And so interesting to see who ends up in the power structures of the rebellion. If uh, if you are correct, and I think you are, that that Bell is going to end up as as sort of Luthen's next number two, then this is just a baton passing from someone based on Coruscant and based in the core worlds to someone else from Chandrella based in the core worlds without like bringing into the actual leadership structures of the rebellion. Anybody who is not part of that initial imperial power that the literal imperial core and and and, and in some ways and I, and I don't want to like overstep uh the bounds of the show here but in some ways i think actually you know what i will because i read an interview from tony gilroy where he says this was something that he was interested in but how is it that um you know mon mothma as this figurehead of liberal democracy ends up at the forefront of a, of a regime the new republic that later fails so he's obviously also taking into account the fact that in the sequel trilogy we see the fall the decline and fall of the new republic and so is this implicit criticism here in the fact that these more principled but less inherently powerful figures like Centaur or like Cassian are the ones that are sidelined in favor of these bourgeois imperial core folks like Vel, like Mon Mothma, like Luthen? And and the, the thought of that being a sort of potential route that this show could explore is just like, you know, I'm kind of like vibrating in my seat because this is so crazy impressive to me. Again, the racial casting also yeah. plays a role here because uh, Cass and Cinta are both brown people, whereas all the people who are kind of slicing off power from that imperial core are white people and are very much coded as white mm -hmm. people, um, given their fancy dresses, their nice condos, their amazing views that they don't savor enough. Um, but I think it, I think it's cool how this show has 
set up worlds. Like, here's this world on Ferrix as this working class town. Here's high society in Coruscant. And then is finding characters that are able to bridge or kind of go across those gaps and what it tells us. Because Vel's thematic purpose in the context with the Eldani group is different than her purpose here on mm-hmm. Coruscant. Um, and we're able to see that kind of play out in real time. Um, the other thing I want to uh, point out is uh, I think Val has a line is like, is that all that's going on between you and Tay Coma? <laughs> um, which is really, really kind of funny because I think everyone's kind of hinting at, are they sleeping around? Even Perrin has something where she, he referred to Tay as her old boyfriend mm-hmm. to Leda. Um, and also speaking of heteronormativity, Perrin is trying to say, Hey, Val isn't time for you to find a husband. Uh, aren't you a little too old to be still looking for a boy? God, he um, fucking sucks so much. And I, I very much enjoyed Mon Mothma just like kind of having a quiet smile to herself about that. Because um, I think Val has this great line about it. it seems like all the good ones yeah. are taken, which is just kind of like a backhanded <laughs> slap at Perrin. Um, so uh, let, while we might as well kind of finish up some of this Mon Mothma yeah. stuff uh, since we're kind of deep into her. Um, no, uh, no pun intended. That was <laughs> uh, there's a lot of drilling in this episode, so it just might be stuck in my mind. Uh We'll finish up with uh, Tay while we're here. Uh, Tay is basically coming and say the auditors are coming. Uh, Space IRS will eventually find out all this money that you've been kind of moving through your accounts that you're taking out of the bank and are just kind of disappearing. Um, So he says they need to kind of bring someone else in. And you kind of see, you know, Mon Mothman was talking to Lutha about bringing someone in on her end. Now the person that Mon brought in is trying to bring on someone on their end. So you see how both the net kind of expands, but also at the same time becomes more tenuous the further out mm-hmm. you get. Um, because this guy that they want to bring in named Davos Skulden, um, which is a great rogue mm-hmm. name. Um, I really like that. Uh, he sounds like a criminal to <laughs> me. Um, but basically he's someone who apparently exists to basically just take into your accounts into his Byzantine accounting book so that if anyone tries to audit him, it's just like, well, there's way too much shit here. Who cares? It's probably all on the up and up. Um, Mon describes him as a thug, but now you're seeing where, because there was a question, a discussion about ideology in terms of just money and funding that existed between Luthen and Mon Mothma. But now as you go further and further into it, and now you're literally bringing in multiple bankers and financiers into this, you know, kind of covert rebellion operation. Obviously, they need money. But again, banking is once again, part of that imperial yes. core. And, and I also think the fact that that Mon kind of fingers him as a thug and, and, and points out that he's he has these criminal elements is really interesting, because this is kind of a long, a, a long fought question on the left is is to what extent should the organized left engage with criminal elements in society? And, 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 and one of the kind of books the the not the foundational book, but one of the books that was foundational for me, at least in thinking about this, is is by Eric Hobsbawm, the, the British Communist Party historian, uh, who everyone mostly knows for having written The Age of. So it's like The Age of Revolutions, The Age of Imperialism, and the other one, which I can never remember. Uh, and, um, and, and he's got a book called Bandits, and he basically traces... Um, the history of the the class that Karl Marx called the lumpen proletariat, which is which is the criminal element, the criminal underclass in in uh, capitalist and, and and feudal societies, and and Hobsbawm kind of traces it to make the point that um, criminality and 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 criminal elements have had an incredibly important role in the organized left for a variety of reasons, and 
and and now this is me kind of adding on to to his kind of argument but there is this kind of element of bringing the moralism around you know crying about having criminal elements involved that 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 handicaps the left in a lot of ways because when obsessing about whether or not it's ethical to include people who probably don't pay their taxes Mon Mothma, in this instance, is basically fucking herself over. If she just immediately gets over her kind of, ooh, like, rough elements, rough criminals, thugs, people who, heaven forbid, don't pay their taxes because they even twig the, the tax bill that Mon Mothma is supportive mm-hmm. of or whatever, mm-hmm. in her kind of desire to be like, oh, well, I'm morally better than them, and I, you know, my ethics are at play here. And she's missing the point, which is that this guy can get her safe. And if she stops fucking crowing about stupid morals that in the face of an ontological evil like the Empire really don't fucking matter. Who cares if you haven't paid your taxes, dude? Who cares? There are bigger fights to have had. Her inability to like decouple herself from that, to, to kind of take a step back from the ethical question and literally just fucking cope with having to deal with the bandits of the world is is going to be a problem for her. And this is this long kind of uh a long kind of uh dealt with or undealt with issue on the organized left. And you know, you get things like um and, and places where I would necessarily or uh, I would, uh, unconditionally say the criminal elements are not good, like things like the new IRA. Uh and, and things that are focused more on just sort of gang warfare instead of uh class warfare. Uh, and that is an important distinction. Uh, and, and you know, uh, even the sort of, you know, I've been watching a lot of narcos, of course, uh, and, and even the sort of pseudo left wing elements to a lot of the the sort of narcotics ops in, in Latin America. Uh, and and this, this attempt to try and gloss uh, things like uh, drug production, cocaine production, weed production, um, on a massive semi-feudal scale with huge amounts of interpersonal violence, largely directed at working class or peasant-like people. Um, you know, attempts to put a sort of left-wing gloss on that. That is a long-standing uh, tradition of the left, and it's a long-standing debate on the left. And and it's cool to see it get this airtime here, particularly when you've got a banker um, who, for all for all we've been told, is not like a, a you know a gray area banker. He's just a banker um, insisting that to Mon that this is a good plan because it also throws into question. Well, if the banker who is essentially a clean or or is effectively a clean and quote unquote good banker is willing to deal with these these guys, then maybe the whole system's kind of dirty. And maybe all these illusions that Mon Mothma has about the ability to do like an ethically clean and an ethically uncontemptible um, approach to politics, maybe that is kind of naive and childlike. Uh, the minute you started talking about how uh, the liberal moralizing about action on the left, uh, what my mind uh, leaped to is um, the clamor for peaceful protests yeah. uh, whenever there's any kind of uh, demonstration here in the United States. Um, because, you know, no matter what, the cops are probably going to tear gas you anyways, but you always get the same cadre of liberals is like, but they were peacefully protesting and, you know, you shouldn't hurt the peaceful protesters. And I'm like, First of all, you're ignoring violence in so many ways just by saying that. But it's just like it's the non-peaceful protesters who actually make a difference, who actually push back are the ones that are holding the line against the jackbooted thugs. They're the ones all in black and they're taking most of the fire or the charge or whatever it is. And this idea that the peaceful protesters are somehow better. I would love you to point to me what 
peaceful protest has really gotten in this country because even the examples that people are going to cite because they you know took a one u.s history class in <laughs> high school um those ones are undergirded with so much violence and that's not even talking about state violence against them um that's like the first thing that leaped out is like you can't you're either going to be on the front lines and you're going to fight or you're going to sit there and like hand ring about the proper way yeah. to do it which is never going to meet whatever that threshold you have set for yourself is that is like the morally acceptable level of violence for this kind of yeah. rebellion. Yeah. And, and I think it's also kind of interesting to see this in context of like, you know, again, um, there, there, you know, Mon Mothma sitting in her lovely, her beautiful chair that I immediately started Googling online how to get a chair that looks like that because I want that for my living room. The beautiful kind of velveteen low to the ground thing looks like a clamshell. Awesome. Love it. Um, you know, she's sitting there in her comfy chair having these conversations with these bankers who have never really faced anything like uh, uh, of critical importance in their lives. Uh, and then intercutting that with the hell on earth that is the prison scenes. And, you know, you, you're watching people being tortured. You're watching people being literally worked to death. You're watching a man have a stroke and it taking like an enormous amount of time for him to get any medical attention and then being speedballed the fuck out of the world by uh, a doctor whose approach to medical care is not, it is my duty to take, Sorry, this is the other. I'm not going to get into this yet, but we'll get back to it in a sec. Uh, but, you know, there, there's this kind of amazing kind of way of cutting between these two and showing the kind of immateriality of and the ridiculousness of like Mon Mothma trying to like make these stupid fucking speeches to a Senate that doesn't care. And the, the phenomenal kind of uh, set lighting design choice of having a whole bunch of the like senatorial kind of discs, the flying saucers turn their lights off as she's talking and she's just not getting it. She's just not getting that she's never going to accomplish anything during this and she's just not going to succeed. And it and you're right, it is that stupid logic of peaceful protest. And Mon Mothma thinks if she just gives the right speech, if she just does the right kind of logic foo, she'll fucking win. And bad news, Mon, like you're never going to win like that. You're not going to win until you pick up a fucking AK. Yeah, no, it was great when she was on the Imperial Senate. Um, pretty much how anytime someone's like, look at this awesome senator, give this great presentation on the Congress floor. And I'm like, who cares? None of this matters. Because um, as you say, people are just turning off their lights and are like walking away. A couple of people's like voice support for her, but it's not any more or less than the people that are just booing her and telling her to shut up. And uh, Tony Gilroy compared Mon Mothma to Nancy Pelosi, and I don't think that was an affectionate comparison. Um, and I definitely think that comes through here because you hear Mon Mothma talking about like how great or reverent she is of the Imperial Senate, about how it's like a temple, like all the people in this remarkable room. I mean, this is all just kind of a facade for the empire. None of it matters. Palpatine's not even there. He does not give a shit whatsoever. Um, she, nobody's listening, like the episode title says. It's just a great example of the feudalness of kind of like the electoral and procedural politics that liberals cling to. But I want to, uh, we'll hop over to the prison, but um, on the note that you were saying, I think the editing in this episode was absolutely astounding because I felt like more than any previous episode, we were intercutting more between different locations where it felt like in some of the earlier episodes, it kind of gave us like all the stuff here at Aldani. And then we jumped over for a big set of scenes in Coruscant uh, before coming back to Aldani. Here, it feels like everything was just more intercut. 
Um, and there was a lot of great transitions from, like you say, the discussions on Coruscant cutting back to what's happening in the prison. There's some great cuts between Bix getting tortured in the prison. Like when she's first being tortured and the door shuts on her, um, it cuts immediately to the table that the prisoners are working on, which just makes me think of like a torture table, like out of Goldfinger or Metal Gear Solid. Um, there's just a lot of very specific cuts in this episode so that you can tell it kind of exactly what the thesis or what Gilroy and his team are trying to communicate to the audience just based on the cuts alone. It's like really just fantastic. Yeah. Work. And it also makes me think and I'm, you know, growing increasingly sick of myself for making this comparison because it's just a fruitless comparison. But it makes me think of the shitty editing and the rings of power and where, you know, they would cut a, a conversation halfway through that conversation because they didn't want you to know the last sentence of it because that would be a, a spoiler. And 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 the, the the editing there just felt so clunky and it felt like it kneecapped the story and it just made it worse. And it's amazing here to see these jumps like you like like you say, like, the, you know, we, we see so much happening and it is a cut every two minutes or so, uh, probably not actually two minutes, probably less than that. But we're jumping around so frequently and it doesn't feel it feels like a fully like it feels like a fully coherent sentence. And it feels like when something cuts in some place, it's not because they're hiding the answer from us. If they're answering it with the follow up scene and when Bix is being tortured and we don't yet see her actually being tortured and they cut to the prison, that is answering the question of what what does torture look like? It looks like this. It looks like the monotony of this alienated labor. And then when they're there and they're in pain and then and, and you know, the, the older man is, is in pain and he, he's suffering and they're all not feeling well and they're all panicking. And then you cut back to Bix and that's answering that question. And you cut to Mon and that's answering another question asked or, you know, that is the answer to a question asked in, in the earlier scene or the earlier cut. And it is, it is, you know, it's competent is what it is. It's basic, competent filmmaking. But holy shit, it is something that has been absent for so long. And, and the fact that we are now seeing it here, literally wrote competence, feels radical and amazing. And, and it shouldn't be, but it is. And I'm really glad that it's in Andor and it's in Star Wars, because what a win. <laughs> Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the prison. Um, this is Olaf's big episode. Unfortunately for him, he gets to be the sacrificial lamb at the altar of story <laughs> here. Um, but one thing I really like about this is um, we mentioned that this is this the last two episodes are playing off a lot of like prison stuff that we know, prison narratives. Um, I've mentioned Shawshank Redemption way too many <laughs> times, but there's also a little bit of like the Great Escape, the way that. Uh, He's like filing away at the piping in the bathroom. It's very similar to them digging the tunnel under the Nazi base. Uh, I already made my cool hand Luke <laughs> joke. Um, but one thing I really like, one thing they haven't necessarily shown is like just unnecessary conflict between prisoners. Like no one's getting shipped yes. here or there's no like uh, Boggs gang that's like busy trying to, you know, sexually assault people yeah. in the shower. Uh, we did have a little bit of that mid management routine from circus last episode but there's just like no unnecessary conflict i love watching the people around table five immediately come to Olaf's like um aid the minute he starts slipping whether it's mentally or physically they're all there like Cassin doesn't even ask he just kind of slides over he says let me help you with that when circus is like who told you to do that he says Taga did not because Taga did but because he knows circus will like that and Taga will get complimented for that so he's like 
really lifting up multiple people as much as we kind of want to shit on Cassian for not having his whole shit together in small communities. When he's down there, he can be very effective working with other people, which we really oh, see. Yeah. Here. This is the episode when he gets his shit together big time. I like, like uh, the, the other thing is right. It, this is a turning point in some ways, or this is the other part of the turning point in some ways for Cassian's story. And it doesn't feel like it i mean it does feel like it. it is obvious that something has changed but it doesn't feel unprecedented like you know we've seen the fact that he's incredibly observant there's an offhand remark he makes about the the handedness the re left or right handedness of the fel the folks on aldani right like that is precedented we saw in the last episode we saw him looking around and we've seen that he has a way with talking to people because of how he was able to diffuse a whole bunch of these situations on uh on ferrix in the very start of this we see that he is not someone who is willing to just take life you know lying down even if, like, as I've said a whole bunch of times, I think he's being a bit of a bitch and how he's been handling the rebellion so far. He's not handling, like, he's not passively letting the world happen to him. He's actively doing it. He's actively making dumb as shit choices, but at least he's actively making choices. And I, and I think this is the really, the episode in which we've we've seen him come, come to life in a lot of ways. And I think we've seen him literally up against the wall. And there's this great bit about ambivalence and i can't remember who it is that writes about ambivalence so embarrassing for me sorry uh now that i brought it up but there's this great bit about mm -hmm. ambivalence and 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 describing what ambivalence is and ambivalence is something that is that is active and 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 not passive and ambivalence is when you are literally thrust up against a wall and forced to make a choice and you decide not to make a choice that's ambivalence ambivalence is an active thing and and we've seen here we've seen cash and get literally thrust up against a wall with a knife against his throat and he has decided to act. He has decided to no longer be ambivalent. Um, whereas in the other sort of situations, we have seen some road ambivalence from him. Um, and I think one of the other things is he's showing his talent with people in a really just uh, uh, chef's kiss way. You know what I mean? Like, like Andy Serkis's character, Kino Leroy or whatever the fuck he is, Kino Loy. Um, he, Kino, Kino Loy, yeah. uh, not to be confused with Kino Roy, uh, who is next <laughs> Succession season's uh, fucking Kendall. Um, anyways, so so Kino Loy um, has uh, a really interesting. You know, I sobbed. I sobbed at the end of this episode, um, based entirely off of Andy Serkis's performance, and and he doesn't change. Cashin doesn't preach at him. He doesn't have a Damascene conversion. You know, he is not a different guy to the one that we met um, in, in uh, what was it, two episodes ago. Um, he is a guy who has stated clearly from the start that he wants to get out and he doesn't want anything to get in the way of him getting out. And if that means he has to act the prison screw and he has to crack the whip against his fellow prisoners, well, that's just in his interest to do. And it, Cashin does a really remarkable two-step where he forces this guy, not 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 literally, but figuratively, theoretically, he forces this guy against the wall by giving him a whole bunch of information about the potential for a prison riot or a prison break that this guy doesn't want to know because if he knows it, suddenly he's in he's on the line. He either can decide to tell all of the people, the 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 you know, the screws, the actual prison guards, what he knows about this potential prison organizing and risk all of them suffering collective punishment, including him and his ability to get out being destroyed, or he can stay silent and still risk having that collective punishment because he stayed silent. And he's put in that position by Cashin very candidly. And then Cashin also puts him in the position of, reminds him, well, look, you're fucked either way and you're fucked either way now because I've made sure that you're fucked, but it's in your interest 
to help us get out. And it's in your interest to know that that organizing as, as a collective here and, and getting off of your high horse is going to get you to your end goal of getting out. And Andy Serkis' character, you know, Kino doesn't see this for the vast majority of the episode. He's still convinced that if he just is, is just productive enough and brings the whip down just hard enough, he'll get out just fine. And, and then, of course, we discover what happened on level two. Well, they all were killed. And someone and the reason they were all killed is because someone from level four was taken down to level two when they were meant to have been released, which means none of them are getting out. None of them are getting out. And this activates something for Kino. And he realizes they're not getting out. And no matter how hard he works, no matter how productive he makes all of his little fucking underlings as Mr. Prison Foreman, he's never getting out. And that's the moment at which he's put against the wall and he can either choose active ambivalence or he can choose to help. And he chooses to help by saying how many prison guards are on any level at a given time, which is the first question Cashin poises to him. And it's just magnificent acting and it's a magnificent setup and it, it is textbook organizing it is if you go open any uh you know manual on how to organize your workplace these are the kind of interactions and these are the kind of relationships that you will be encouraged to to cultivate because it is clear-eyed about how the world works and 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 seeing cashin put this to use when to be honest for the last seven episodes he's been a massive pussy is such a the angels are singing moment. I was looking at Kino this episode, and it really makes sense why they brought in Andy Circus to play this role specifically. Because um, I'm like, well, if he's just going to be a throwaway guy, you don't get Andy fucking Circus. But here he gets to be the one who gets to kind of not be radicalized, but kind of brought into the fold, like you were saying. Uh, this is what we were talking about. Um, I try to imagine it like a Cartesian plane, and where whatever direction Kino's line is pointing. Andor's line and everyone else in this prison is kind of pointing not in the same exact direction, but they're still in the same quadrant. They're kind of moving in the same direction, but he's at like, say, a 60 degree angle while Andor's at 45. And it's Cass's job to kind of meet them in the middle or get Kinos to kind of line up exactly with um, what's it called? Andor and the rest of the prisoners that even though he's the prison screw that like you said, it's textbook organizing. This is how you start finding people who have their own individual rebellions and start lining them up to be one big rebel alliance. And I almost view Kino as like a Sisyphus character in this episode. Cause basically he is someone who's approaching the top of the hill. He's got 217 shifts left and he watches this other Sisyphus Olaf, who's right at the top of the hill. He's got 40, 40 shifts left. And then at the top, you know, even though he's like has a massive stroke and is basically dying, he's just like, we just got to get him to the top. We just got to get him to the top and he'll be fine. And then he'll be out of there. And then we can move on to the next man out, um, which might even be him. That might be uh, Lee, uh, Kino himself. But then as he realizes that, oh, the doctor is not really there to help him, just like basically put him out of his misery. It just like all of a sudden you can see Circus Jokerfy. Mm -hmm. And like it is like an outstanding performance, especially just for a single episode of television. Because, um, you know, Cass, as soon as the doctor comes in, is like, what happened on level two? What's going on? Please tell us more. T please tell us more. But it's the moment that he actually, um, the doctor actually euthanizes Olaf that you can just see Circus kind of like dissociate stare off into the distance and grit his teeth and then he starts repeating the questions that Cass was asked like what do you mean no one's getting out of here or what do you mean it's it doesn't matter or, in another week you're all going to be like this too like all of that stuff just starts like you know 
kind of driving Kino mad. And I really love the fact that the episode just ends on a determined circus walking away and finally answering Cass's question. There are never more than 12. It's not that there are 12 guards. It's that there are never more than 12. Um, I just love the very specific nature of the language used and how it really kind of kind of like Deidre Miro a couple episodes ago. Like you legitimate feel a win for this character who you don't necessarily especially like other than the fact that he's being played astoundingly well by Andy mm-hmm. Serkis. Um, but you see that turn in him and you're like, oh shit, we got Andy Serkis on our side now. You better watch out. I saw him liberate a whole country of apes and he was an ape himself. Uh, now that he's like a full bipedal human being, he can do so much more. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. <laughs> I also think it's like, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's Star Wars kind of returning to its roots. Um, because if you think about the character of Han Solo, right? And um, Han stays with the rebellion or finishes out the original part of the rebellion um, because he's paid off. Uh, you know, it's that great Leia line. If money is all you want, then money is what you will get. And and she's trying to appeal to Han on a moral level. And she's trying to say, well, Han, why don't you stay? Because the galaxy is fucked. And Han's answer is essentially the Jen answer or Jen Urso answer, which is doesn't matter if you don't look up. Um, and then Leia is like, well, how, how about some money? And it's the same thing that Luke does. It, Luke is also like, when he's trying to convince Han to come through to get Leia, he's like, she's rich. And Han goes, rich? And and there's that whole sort of like, you know, Han is kept, originally kept to the rebellion on the on the principle of material interest. He's following his own material interest. And that's actually what pulls him away as well in Empire is, is you know, he, he's got a death mark on his head. He's got to go pay off Jabba the Hutt. And, and, and Han is an intensely sort of money-oriented character. And I think a lot of what is, went wrong in subsequent iterations of uh, Star Wars, whether it's the prequels or the sequels, um, is this desire to appeal to the morality instead of to appeal to the the moral issues, right? So, like, you know, there's Padme, um, who is one of the more overtly political characters in, in Star Wars up to this point, ha ha ha. Um, and, and Padme's only, re- like, Padme looks at a little boy or someone who was once a little boy who was raised in slavery in a dirt poor planet that her government does not give a shit about. And it's worth pointing out that Padme sees for at first hand slavery on Tatooine and then goes back as a senator in in the Imperial Corps, the heart of the Imperial, well, not then the Imperial Corps, the heart of the Republic Corps. And there's no change to that condition. There's no nothing. There's no laws. There's no attempt to free these slaves. Neither Padme nor the Jedi do anything. And then Padme spends the next 10, 15 years lecturing Anakin, who is basically you know, groomed into the Jedi order at risk of like, he either goes with these fucking weirdos and, and, you know, escape slavery or he stays as a fucking slave his whole life. And as Anakin's mom, Shmi says to Anakin in one, don't fucking make that choice. Go with the Jedi. Don't be stupid. And Padme spends the whole rest of the time trying to appeal to Anakin on these like wishy-washy moral grounds, which is like, Oh, but how could you possibly not want democracy? Child who has been raised in an intensely hierarchical hierarchical system that he sees as the reason he is out of slavery. Why would you not understand horizontal liberalism? And she fails. She fucking fails because she doesn't actually know how to talk to anyone who isn't a bourgeois politician. And then you look at the sequel trilogy where again, and it's, you know, increasingly as we get farther away from last year, I don't think this was intentional, but, you know, Leia and uh, Laura Dern, uh, whose name I can never remember, uh, you know, failing to stop a fucking mutiny because 
because they're so obsessed with their rank and their order and they're not paying attention to the material circumstances around them and they're not protect like they're not paying attention to the actual reality around them they're so obsessed with these moral appear appeals to well you know leia was uh you know leia is princess leia and therefore she should be listened to or laura dern won a battle at this place and therefore she should be listened to without any reflection on what the the practical reality is around them and and these guys fucking fail and 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 thus far Star Wars has not been introspective about that. It has not been introspective about the fact that when it, it runs away from the material circumstances of it, its characters, uh, things inevitably fall apart because they're just fucking stupid. And it's going back here to that. And it's not even just saying that, like, I think I think um, Andy Serkis walks off of that episode a bit of a hero. Um, like, he gets the quote-unquote redemption mm -hmm. arc that everybody is so fucking obsessed with lately. And and he hasn't actually changed anything. He's acted in his own material interest. But the show is making the wider metatextual argument that getting people to act in their material interest is a good thing. And it's not something worth moralizing over because as long as they get to the right endpoint, things are good. And and it's a, it is a brilliant, brilliant place for, for Star Wars to get to. Uh, I can imagine Nemec writing a chapter on the use of material selfishness in order to achieve rebellion. Yeah, well, isn't that the fucking uh, Andor thing that he, he doesn't, he say that he's literally done that based off of passion, like, ah, uh, the parallels, the connections. Uh, okay, well, I'm going to hit you with a connection you're not going <laughs> to like. Um, I think when Olaf is dying and Cass is really doing everything he can to help him, I kind of see that's maybe Cass seeing a little bit of Marva in Ulov, <gasps> oh. or at least setting up a very similar situation near like the end of the oh, season no. or at some point in the final couple episodes because it's, it seems like Marva's failing too. Um, based on the report we get from the Imperial Security Bureau, if you don't mind hopping over to that set of stories next, um, we this is basically another huge Deidre episode. Um, and I'm actually going to backtrack a bit because we talk so much about how well they've realized Val and Mon Mothma. Um, I want to talk about Deidre a bit because they're forgetting like the characterization of a rich woman character, which yada, yada, that's good, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm a man <laughs> saying that. What I'm really interested in is how they made her a great villain. Yeah. Like they invested us in her character overcoming her ISB like associates in the first couple episodes that we saw her in and she got that big win where she won over major part of gas and now she really gets to go next level villainy and the thing is we're we're rooting against her but like we have so much invested in her as a villain now like the way she's torturing bix is just incredible the way she's so smart and reading all the signs that are coming through between her interrogations between capturing the rebel pilot um between her plans with what to do next hey let's make sure the separatist plot with anton krieger anto krieger <laughs> sorry goes through um let's leave marva just let her be we'll watch her um because we assume at some point castle is going to try and come back and you know make contact with her um it's just such a great villain that they've cultivated out of deidre and that started first by creating a really interesting character and then worrying about making her the villain after yeah. that and i think this is also like <sighs> I think Denise Gao should get uh, an Emmy. I think I think she is mm -hmm. phenomenal in this. And, and I think the 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 first opening the scene up with her going literally full mask off and just being absolutely terrifying is I think um, one of the smartest things I've seen. Well, um, one of the smartest among many smart things uh, I've seen the show do so far. And I think it's especially interesting given. Um, 
Denise Gao in Luca in Italy uh, this week um, saying to the press and making my heart sing that um, that that Deidre Mero is not a woman uh, or not just a woman amongst men. She is a fascist among fascists. And I just spent all day dancing around my house. I was so delighted by that. But that's what we're seeing here is we haven't seen any of the imperial men be this evil. We have not seen them inflict Pain. Mm -hmm. She feels no solidarity with Bix. They're both women, right? And a lot of liberal feminists would have you think that because they are both women, they have some sort of commonality or some sort of solidarity as a fucking quote unquote class, which is insane and totally against reality. And here, the show shows us this. She doesn't blink. She does not blink. She has no sympathy for this girl. She doesn't care. She does awful, horrible things to her. And she, and oh my God, wait, okay. I wrote it down because I was so amazed by it, but she's got this great line where she's like, right, okay. <laughs> she she gets down in Bix's face and she goes, you're in my net, Bix. And then raises her eyebrow, her right eyebrow. And it's the most bone chilling thing since like Anthony Hopkins in Hannibal, or in not Hannibal, in Silence of the Lambs being like, have the lamb stopped screaming yet to Clarice? I've, I've totally bollocked up the line there, but it's that level of like, God, this person is not even just like evil. They are like, like evil beyond measure and they don't care. And there's no coming back for them. And it is delightful to watch. No, I think they're very much teeing that up because they do an exact parallel to Vader from A New Hope in this uh, one of her torture scenes with Bix. I think it's the second one after they already got most of the useful information out of her. Um, there's a point where Tigo is like asking her, is like, can I hang pack or whatever from the town hall so that everyone can see? And she's like, yes. Um, but there's this shot of the door where Bix is like being... Uh, contained in the door shutting and then a quick down shot to boots walking away from the closing door that's the exact same shot from a new hope where that uh probe droid comes into leia's cell and is going to like you know inject her and make her like spill the truth and then it just cuts to the door sh yeah. shutting and you see the imperial guard like walking away down that hallway that luke and han later shot like the shot is so specific and exact and the thing you're immediately meant to think is like oh shit this is like vader level kind of evilness but it's not so some crazy man in a samurai space <laughs> outfit who's breathing really weird. It's just a a white woman, which is <laughs> the scariest. You know, thing it makes my heart sing. <laughs> yeah, um, and like that entire torture scene with Bix is incredible. Like just the way they stage it, the way Bix is kind of like not even on screen half the time. The camera just follows Deidre around as she makes her sneering faces. She has this great line that the worst thing you can do right now is yes. bore me, um, which is actually really funny because they then the next cut is going to be to the prison where they're actually like doing some drilling and actual boring. <laughs> um, like they are just so specific without this anyways. And Deidre even admits like, I'm not going to believe whatever you say anyways and still torture you regardless. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to, uh, he's going to, you know, he basically gives Bix the op the option, it can either be the best of times or it can be the gorst of times <laughs> as this like Dr. Imperial no. gorst guy who has like one of the greatest eyebrows I've ever seen or like British Imperial eyebrows because um, they are thick and they are long. And he's like very much like giddy at the prospect of torturing Bix, which I thought last week the whole electrocuted floor thing was like a pretty gnarly torture but this whole like reverse oculus they put on you and like make you like hear the screams of these dying alien racist children um it's just incredible stuff um 
And they do this really incredible shot where like they put this headset on Bix, on the actor, um, and then the camera kind of pans around to square her up like symmetrically on screen, or at least her face is like per- perfectly, you know, flush with the screen. And then they just show her screaming, but like you don't see her mouth, you just hear it. Um, it's all just very well considered. Um, even the part where like they have this tense music playing as they're prepping the torture equipment. And as soon as they put it over Bix's ears, the score just drops out. Yep. So you're just left with your imagination of what could she possibly be hearing in her ears at yep. the moment. And, and this is and this is the thing that the show understands better than almost anything out there right now, which is nothing is scarier. Nothing is more beautiful. Nothing is more uh, meaningful than the things that you imagine. Right. And, and I think the fact that it, it's interesting that they show us the floor in the last episode and don't show us this because if the the floor the floor torture now constitutes the upper limit of what they are willing to show on screen and they were not willing to let us hear the sounds of the screams which means it is magnitudes you know orders of magnitude worse than the floor and we saw what the floor looked like and the floor was not pretty that was not a nice or an easy form of torture and they let our imaginations they let that suggestion that what they are and aren't showing us do the work for them. They don't need to find a sound effect that sounds ultra scrape, you know, scary. They don't need a fucking uh, Nazgul shriek. They show her reaction to it and let us fill in the gaps. And and the implication, the the uh, again, uh, I'm Dennis, and it's always sunny. The implications. Um, but the show <laughs> understands the implications and how to use people's imagination uh, against them, or you know, how to use people's imaginations in their favor. You know, they don't have to over-engineer this narrative. They don't have to engineer every plot beat and every character moment because they trust that our brains are good enough to, you know, figure out that torture probably doesn't feel good. And and it's the, the kind of subtlety of the show that, that really makes it scary. And, you know, we haven't had a Vader Rogue One scene in this show. We have not seen a guy buck up an entire, you know, hall full of, uh, armed people, armed and trained soldiers, um, as if he's literally just cutting butter. But we don't need to because every single time the Empire shows up on screen, they are scarier by far than Vader in that Rogue One scene. And it's because they know to let us scare ourselves. We know what's scariest to us. And the show knows that that's true. And the show lets us fill in the blanks. And and that's really the, the, the sort of massive kind of dub of this entire show is just let the imagination work. Just let it work. Yeah, you don't really have to imagine too hard, to be yeah, honest. Exactly. Um, it's it's the difference between how okay we've talked about two different things that I think apply here. One is when shows sometimes ask us to bring our say like real world misogyny or racism into stuff, and how awful that is, or how clumsy that can be. Here, it's letting us. We've all lived through the Patriot Act and post nine eleven, or at least anyone with a brain has some idea of what has happened at Abu Ghraib and Gitmo, and like the kind of obscene tortures we subject people to. How you've watched twenty four probably at this point. Um, so you know, you maybe get an idea of that though. In twenty four, usually the good guys are doing mm-hmm. the torturing, which you know, there you go. Um, and then the other aspect of it is the fact that we talked about with the rings of power, how often they cut away just to not show the audience something or just to not say something that would give something down the road because they think the fact that an object is going to be a ring is some kind of reveal on the <laughs> rings of power. Instead, what they're cutting away, the thing is because they want you to do 
we want the worst that your brain is capable of imagining to do the work for us. So it's actually using those margin, using those silence, using those cutaways to actually boost the, the, the thing that's there as opposed for it to be like, well, you know what's coming. So we're going to cut away so we can save it for a later scene. It's really perfect. And I like how you said that we never see Bix really being tortured other than the initial putting on of the like headset or whatever. Like it cuts away from that and then it comes back to her after a little bit. And hell, like it cuts back to her just for like a 30 second shot late in the episode. There's no dialogue. She's not doing anything. We just see her sitting there catatonic. Mm -hmm. It kind of reminded me a little bit of um, when Ned Stark at the end of season one before he's beheaded, but it's just kind of captured and thrown in the black cells. Um, they don't want you to forget that, hey, Sean Bean is our number one star and is part of the show. So they'll just have a shot of like Sean Bean sitting in his jail cell for a little bit. Uh, nothing really happens, but then it cuts elsewhere because they want you to remember, hey, this guy is suffering right here, right now. And everything that's kind of happened kind of revolves around that as yeah. well. And, and I think so. this it, it's kind of a leftward turn, but it's it's something that you brought up originally getting into this that, that I do actually want to talk about, which is um, I think I think Deidre has made her first mistake. Um, and I think her first Ooh. mistake is thinking that Marva is actually at death's door. And I know we saw Marva in the last mm -hmm. episode and she wasn't looking well, but we also know that Marva was up and walking around and sussing out the hotel and the tunnels beneath the hotel because she thinks she's a rebel and she thinks that that's how the rebellion is going to get in to rescue Ferex. And I think Marva is dead smart. And I think Marva has a very clear understanding of how to survive things. And I think Marva knows that even the Empire right now isn't willing to torture a frail old woman that everyone seems to know. And I think she's kind of playing it up. And I think and I think Deidre gets the politics of it. I don't think Deidre has spared Marva out of the goodness of her heart. I think Deidre has spared Marva because she also knows that it's politically bad uh, to torture uh, uh, torture a frail old woman. And she doesn't quite have a... She doesn't think that there's enough of a grasp over barracks the the fist isn't quite as like airtight yet there uh, that she can do that and pull that off without actually starting the thing that she's trying to prevent which is a rebellion um but i think she's made her mistake um and i think her mistake is you know you don't need to torture marva um to get cash in i think you just need to make the you know pass the illusion of it you need to make cash and think that that's what's happening. And I think by leaving Marva out of it and going for the younger, healthier people, she's kind of fucked up. Um, and I think Marva might kind of be hiding something um, about how ill or not ill she really is. And, and I just think that I think we're finally starting to see some of uh, Deidre's uh, otherwise incredibly impressive sort of instincts start to falter and fail. Yeah, no, I, th I think you're dead on. I think we've talked a lot about like uh, gender and race in terms of like kind of the implicit casting and kind of the dynamics depicted in the show. I think age is another one, yeah. to be honest. Um, and I think that's like, I just think, you know, an old woman, even under like, even an old white woman under patriarchy or like our Anglosphere patriarchy, imperialism, whatever you want to call it, um, they are kind of disregarded and left out to die. Literally, that's all that happened during COVID is letting old white women yeah. die. Um, so like you just don't view them as someone who is like has vitality and has something to do. And I was very, very uh, aware that when 
Deidre's talking about Marva, she uses like the phrase that she's too old and too frail. It's very similar to the phrasing that Marva used herself, that she's too old, but she doesn't care yeah. anymore. Like, it's basically like, she's too old, so that means she can't do anything. Whereas Marva's like, I'm too old, so that means I got nothing yeah. to lose. It's like, this is, I can go out and do something worthwhile. So I think Marva's, I don't want to say call it habit a hero moment, but I think they are underestimating her. And I love that... Th- it would be perfect for Deidre's characterization for that to somehow be a soft spot for her. Not a soft spot, but like something she overlooks or underestimates, yeah. uh, which I think is yeah. perfect. Well, and it's also this thing, right? It, like to, to go back to this idea of the imagination, right? Like, like, like Marva has nothing left to lose, but Marva can also imagine a world out with the Empire. Deidre Miro is so intimately connected to the Empire. She not only cannot imagine a world without it, but she also can't imagine that other people might be able to. And so she can't imagine anybody having motivations that are so utterly distinct from the Empire. She thinks that, you know, that Marva will only do certain things or that any character will only do certain things on the basis of they still have to operate in a society. And, you know, Marva's still got pals because, uh, you know, all of the people on Ferrick still like Marva and Marva wouldn't do anything to fuck over those people or Cassian wouldn't do anything to fuck over those people. Um, because he's still ultimately living in 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 this system and in this world, and eventually they'll have to kind of come home to roost. And all of these people, and and Marva's the first one to really articulate it, they have no interest in coming back to this situation. If they burn all of their bridges with the Empire, they don't care. They are going to they're going to build a new world or they are going to die trying. And and those motivational differences are key. And I think that's where her her real weakness is going to start coming in because she can sort of kind of gamify you know you know uh, like gamify the, the 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 steps that she thinks these people are going to take and she's going to she can try and do her little war games to figure it out but but in the end the radicals will always have the upper hand because they can imagine life beyond and and Deidre can't and the empire can't and it, it will be their ultimate weakness and and it's what we see in you know it, it's what we see in Jedi in Return of the Jedi is Palpatine can't imagine that Vader would ever turn on him. He cannot imagine that Luke would be able to crack through, um, you know, Palpatine's hold over Vader, and 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 Luke does, um, and and Vader's ability to imagine a, a future in which the goodness that is represented by Luke succeeds over the evil that is uh, represented by Palpatine is the thing that changes the game. And Palpatine's blindness to that possibility is what bucks him in the end. And and I think that's kind of where we're starting to to build with all of it. Yeah, Deidre's real boyfriend is the Empire, <laughs> which unfortunately leaves her no room for yes. Cyril Karn, who apparently is very down bad for her after their first encounter last weekend. Oh um, we see that Karn has uh, cut his hair. He's dressing a little sharper. Um, he's even got a promotion at work. It things like everything's up and up for Cyril Karn. Even his mom is proud of him for his promotion. Oh, um, there, There's a really comedic cut where... Um, Cyril and his mom Edie are sitting on opposite sides of the breakfast table and um, they're sitting on the opposite sides but as soon as he says I got a promotion all of a sudden Edie is like sitting right next to him on the bench like she just like teleported over right away to give him a little smooch on the kiss Um, I don't know it felt very like Abbott and Costello or Three Stooges the way it was like the comedic timing of it just kind of blew my mind in the moment maybe I'm insane and there was absolutely nothing there but um, we've (laughs) 
Uh, we find, I also love that Edie like pours extra cereal into his bowl as like a good job. Um, and that's, there's also a great transition here where um, after that, uh, Edie goes back to like make some coffee and like the grinding or the coffee making noise once again, like runs into some drilling noises uh-huh. that transitions back to the prison. But I really want to get into Karn stepping up to Deidre in front of the Imperial Security Bureau. Um, Because he literally is just like sitting out there lounging around. He's got a cool raincoat on, which I really (laughs) liked. Um, And then uh, he like notes Deidre coming and he just kind of being all nonchalant. And then literally right at the perfect moment steps right in her way. um, Because she's who she is. She doesn't bump into him. She's able to stop on a dime. And, you know, he's like, I'm Cyril Karn. And she's like, I know who you are. (laughs) Um, I just love everything about the scene because... Apparently, Deidre has, you know, awoken something in God. Cyril. Um, Put it to sleep. Just, not just his love for the Empire, but also his love of Ugh. women, which, you know, I totally get it. I totally <laughs> get it. Um, it. It's just such a great way. And it's such a, I don't, I don't know where exactly it's going to go, but I love that this is the little turn they put on it as opposed to having them work together and them like falling in love with each other over time. Instead, he's just this like psycho stalker yep. dude. Um, I called him like a suck ass Byronic <laughs> hero in the recap, but um, he like, like you keep saying, like he's, he's the Disney princess who keeps singing his, I want song over and over and over yep. again, hoping that someone's going to yep. listen. Well, you know what? It kind of cracks me up because like, you know, you, you, you tend to get in, in every kind of, piece of art, uh, a character who is genre aware, a character who knows that they are in a horror movie or who knows that they're in a fantasy novel and and who kind of behaves, you know, accordingly. And I think it's really funny because um, Karn has the ability to be that character, but is whiffing it quite badly. And I think he thinks he's living <laughs> in a Jane Austen novel. And I think he's looking at this as like Darcy's first rejected proposal and, and Lizzie will eventually come back to him. But like as his mom, his amazing mom, who is my favorite character ever, uh, keeps pointing out, he's fucking pathetic. He's a fucking pathetic worm of a man. He still has to have his mom like clean his fucking bedroom, make his bed, make like two square meals a day for him. He's pathetic. He is pathetic. Mm-hmm. He has nothing to offer someone like her. And he's also crying his eyes out while she's just trying to get to her 9 a.m. meeting and looks pathetic. And I'm sure in his head, he seems like he's like this kind of, like you say, this Byronic hero, this this potential romantic lead. He is Mr. Darcy. He is, he is you know, Colin Firth emerging from the river or Matthew McFadden crossing, a, a, you know, a dew-soaked uh, field to to, you know, swoop in and take Kira Knightley in his arms. And this dude is not that. He's he's Heidi Klum as the fucking worm on on Halloween. Like he is just p- upsettingly pathetic. Um, and and I like that the show is not trying to give him undue sympathy. Like, you know, people might feel sympathy for him and that's fine. I don't begrudge them that. I think he's pathetic. I think he's a walking embarrassment. Mm-hmm. I think the best thing that could be done for him is to shoot him in the head and turn him into Elmer's glue. But like it is not improbable <laughs> that people feel sympathy for him, but the show is not going out of the way to make people feel sympathy for him. And I'm, it's so refreshing. It's so refreshing. And I felt so creeped out and claustrophobic in that scene. And the moment she walked away, I was like, go off queen. Like, you're right. Just leave this fucking creep who's harassing you in the middle of the street. Like you're right. <laughs> yeah, no. And he grabs her arm just as he says, you know, I found something worth clinging on to. Um, And I think that's exactly like the right word choice there. He's clinging onto her. He's not like, 
in love. I think he found someone who he's in love with the idea of yeah. her, um, which I hope because I think the actual her is even worse <laughs> than the idea of her when you get down to it. Um, and I also, um, there's a turn of phrase I really enjoyed um, because apparently Cyril's uh, record was wiped clean and uh, Deidre uh, calls it, you've been given a clean bill of mm-hmm. health, which ties it back to uh, Partagaz's analogy when he first was introduced, like in episode four or whatever, um, saying that like the ISB are healthcare providers <laughs> and they're there to root out sickness. So I really like that healthcare analogy kind of running through it's because we're seeing Partagaz and Deidre align more and more in these episodes. He like... Um, when they're talking about the rebel pilot that they capture, um, we see that Deidre's already there talking with Partagaz while the other like couple generals like or counselors or supervisors, whatever they are, walk in late. Mm-hmm. Like they apologize, like, sorry, we were off site. And you just see Kyber just give them a look, yeah. just like, of course, you're late. Um, and then at the end, when um, Deidre's like, ooh, you know, we... You know, we're going to like make this seem like a fake accident so that Anto Krieger like goes forward with his plan and then we'll just re- reinforce our military at Spellhouse and we'll basically capture them. Um, we see that she basically gets up without being told to and says, we're on it, we're going to it, we're going to get it done. And then meanwhile, the other uh, supervisors who are sitting down says, and we'll do whatever perfunctory stuff you gave us to do in this part of the job. And they're just kind of lounging there and part of gas just kind of stares at them as like, all right, now let's go. Come on, get up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so they're doing a great job of showing how in tune Deidre and Partagaz is, which is, I wouldn't call it a warming relationship, but it is a relationship I'm having a lot of fun with as it's developed over the last like five or six yeah. episodes. And, and I think it's also really fascinating because I feel like that relationship sits in the, in direct contrast to Karn's relationship to his mother. Um, and Edie Karn, again, magnificent chef's gifts of a character, has this devastating line absolutely devastating and i'm going to compare it to lord of the rings but i want to do the line first and and she says of him you are the shadow of a son a tenant a stranger now that is a fucking kill shot that is 360 no scope that man is dead but it also reminds me desperately of the lord of the rings books return of the king where denethor and faramir are having their little dick measuring contest at the at, during the siege of gondor when they're trying to decide who's gonna have to take the l and go defend osgiliath until the rohirrim arrive and 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 denethor basically nails faramir to the cross with um ever is your desire to appear lordly and gracious uh, i can't remember what, what exactly the line is but but he basically says you know that is well for for one who lives in times of peace um but you don't, you fucking dipshit. So stop like flouncing about with your stupid ass morals. Get on your horse and go defend the fucking base so that everybody else doesn't die. Your stupid hopped up like uh, fucking bohemian dilettante morals don't come ahead of the lives of the hundreds of thousands of people who live in Gondor. And he looks into Faramir's soul in that moment and says, you are pathetic. Pull it together. And and Faramir reacts accordingly. He, he, he does a, a effectively go do what he has been told to do because he's been read to filth by his father. And 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 I think it's interesting, again, that Edie Karn is the one doing this in this moment because I think whereas Star Wars has been for so long about fathers and sons, um, now we are getting, a, well, a mothers and sons uh, relationship instead. And, and mothers are entering the picture. And it's not to say that, you know, to do this mealy mouth bullshit about how mothers are you know, more nurturing or more caring than fathers or how motherly relationships are better, the mothers we've seen in the show are tough as nails and are by and large kind of disappointed with their kids. Um, and, and, and Edie Karn is just as cutting and just as painful and brutal as any, you know, Star Wars father could possibly be. And Marva is just as sort of 
um, aggressively radical and out there and out front and 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 kind of um, in control of a situation as any father could be. And and Cashin and Karn are kind of the fuck ups. And then you compare that to this also pseudo parental relationship of Deidre and uh, Kyburn, whose name I can never remember, and I don't care. Uh, Kyburn, um, and 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 how she is in effect this sort of symbolic daughter who is obviously going to either usurp her, her dipshit older father who is kind of in control but obviously not half as clever as she is or if she fails to usurp him something is going to happen to either destroy him or destroy her and and these guys are on a collision course of some sort and and that is a far more similar relationship to the fathers and sons relationship that we're used to in star wars whether it's you know vader and luke or uh, <laughs> uh anakin and palpatine and and seeing this collision course kind of be transposed in, in gendered circumstances and then also seeing the alternate side of it with uh, the mothers and sons is is just is 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 really cool and I think a really nice turn on the usual kind of Star Wars drag. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, I have nothing to add to that. Uh, any other things you want to touch on or uh, random observations you want to make? Oh my god, I had one. Where was it? What was the one that I really wanted to talk about? Um. Oh, yes. Okay, so this is kind of just silly, um, but it did mean a lot to me. Um, so this show, I think, has been incredibly adept at, you know, in a lot of the interviews that Tony Gilroy has done, he says that his approach to Star Wars, to writing for Star Wars, has not been to write for a Star Wars. It's to imagine that Star Wars was real and write for that, write for that world, write for the world in which he lives in the galaxy far, far away and not write for a galaxy far, far away as an IP. Um, and, and I think what that means is we've got this, like, textural landscape this narrative landscape that that has these incredible details because they are thinking of it as real and, and one of the things that really got me um is is you get you, you get the effects of environmental poverty um and uh, a guy whose name is repeated a whole bunch of times old guy whose name was repeated a whole bunch of times you off or whatever it is uh, that i can never remember um he's he's exhibiting the signs not just of a stroke but of arthritis and, and arthritis is a is a degenerative uh, condition that is a muscular degenerative condition that is uh, tethered quite explicitly to poverty and, and to industrial economies. And if you are someone who has worked in a uh, in, in heavy industry in in a factory doing lots of uh, mechanics work or in a coal mine or on a an oil rig or uh, you know any of these sort of uh, heavy industry jobs, and um, you are more likely to get. Uh, to 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 develop arthritis um, and and arthritis like something like asthma is is a is a is something that can theoretically affect anybody but precisely and specifically mostly affects working class people and so the fact of his being in a prison um, and his having some sort of arthritic element to his body and that being included, but that not being the hinge point on any part of the plot um, because the stroke is separate from the arthritis. That is one of these things where you get the sense that this is a truly lived in environment. And not only is it a lived in environment, but but they're thinking about what what it actually what the world would actually be like for these characters and then fleshing these characters out. Uh, accordingly and 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 it, it's a level of thought and interest you know obi-wan kenobi after 20 years in the desert should probably have some fucked up joints but we never really see that in a new hope and that's not to detract from alkins's obviously incredible performance but it's the kind of thinking the kind of like environmental seriousness 
that has been lacking in Star Wars recently. And I'm, you know, tickled to to see it kind of rear its head here. No, that's great. I definitely don't have that good of an observation to end end on. Um, I did want to, uh, what's it called, report some sad news um, from the Niamos episode. It turns out Pizos is not space pizza. Um, Apparently, it's some kind of pill or upper. Oh, nice. (laughs) um, Which, uh, you know, those are good, too. um, But it is not space pizza, (laughs) which I'm very disappointed about. I panicked myself by saying it's probably crack. And it is crack. Yeah! (laughs) Um, that is, I believe, the same episode where we see Deidre and her, like, Lieutenant Heert um, stay up late to look at more case files, and she's popping pills, oh so I believe what she was taking was probably the oh pizos. Um, the last thing I want to say is, um, I don't know if we've noted this yet so far in our coverage, but the intro music is slightly different for every episode. Um, we've noticed a couple of the smaller changes, like in episode six, the big Aldani heist, you can hear like the metallic clanging that was from Ferrix in episode three. Um, this intro for this episode was both higher octane and higher octave um, in that there was a lot more beats. There was a good bass running through it. There was a lot more just notes in the melody, but then also the synth uh, sounds were higher in terms of octave, like they were higher pitched. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not a musician, so I don't have any better words than that. Um, but I just love that. I don't know if it means anything, but I just love the attention to detail that's showing up. And it just kind of feels like we're slowly escalating to what should be an explosive finish to the season. So that'll wrap us for this episode. But before we sign off, we want to thank our patrons, starting with our $10 patrons. Remember, you can get your own Middle Earth name by signing up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod. So first of our $10 patrons, I'd like to thank Johnny Flores, a.k.a. Lothamon of Pelinke. And Ed the Revelator, a.k.a. Silent Spider, Guardian of Kirith Ungol. Haley Glyphs, a.k.a. Ayuilendele. <laughs> yes, the close enough. Eranwo Minyatar, a.k.a. Matthew Abbott. Idranor of Kolkarthad, a.k.a. Maddie Hugh. Uh, Sal Quendil, a.k.a. Cam Lewis. Laika Melma, a.k.a. Zach Newman. And then our $5 patrons. Uh, new one this time. We got Lestariel of the Lausalea. Yeah. Or since, uh, how is that pronounced? Uh, Lausalea. Okay, Lestariel of Lausalea, who is our friend Maddie K. Maddie, Ray. Maddie, Maddie. And Maddie, while we were start doing our sound check, told me to tell you, Emily, that you rule. <laughs> so I am just officially doing this on the air now. So Maddie, I fulfilled your promise. I told Emily she rules. Thank you, Maddie. Also, Tara Burnett, a.k.a. Elenistar Rovinda. And just a reminder, you can send us emails about Andor specifically at mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to incorporate some of your thoughts and takes into our coverage. So that closes the book on this episode of There Andor Back Again, a special presentation by My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. You can follow my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter and Instagram and support us at patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as J.R. Tweetin, which is where you can find me on Twitter, popping pizzos to keep up with Deidre Miro. Please love me. I can fix you. 
saying Sigroni Tima to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ethraglier and Drithion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. As is Captain Tigo begging to hang Salmon Pack on Bix Road to, sorry, that's Rick's Road, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>